I know that there's a tremendous shift away from truth. And in that shifting, there's going to be those that hold on to truth. And all I can tell you is you better get ready because there's an onslaught of persecution that's coming. It is coming. And I feel heavy in my heart to share this with you tonight. We're going to go to Hebrews chapter 11 and, and then Proverbs 23. Hebrews 11 verses 32 down through verses 38. And I'm just going to read this. And what shall I say more? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah and of David also and Samuel and of the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised back to life again. And we all wish that that verse or that, that context of Scripture ended right there. All of it was positive and great and wonderful. And God did all these great things. And let's just hard stop. But that's not where it ends. The rest of it says, and others were tortured. And not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings. Yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. And they were stoned. And they were sawn asunder and were tempted and were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. And we look at ourselves and say, is that really Christianity? Because if that's the Christianity of the New Testament, I don't know, I mean, some of us might say, I don't know if I want to be part of any of that. But that's the living reality that some people faced then. And it's hard to believe, but it is true that they are still facing it today. Men and women and children are going through things on the earth that we have no idea about. And so Proverbs chapter 23, verses 23 has become my life verse. One of the most favorite verses of all of Scripture, I love all of Scripture, but this one's kind of, you know, Proverbs 23, verses 23. Look at your neighbor and tell your neighbor these words. Buy the truth and don't sell it. Buy the truth and sell it not. Also, wisdom, instruction, and understanding. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for this privilege, God, that I have to be in this house tonight for the next 30, 40 minutes I thank you, Jesus, for the word that you have so burdened upon my heart. I pray, God, that you'd help me to deliver this in a, in a real way. Father, I ask you that you'd give us ears to hear what you say. Help me to bring it forth in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. You may be seated. I'm going to give us a definition tonight, the, the definition of the word persecute. Persecute, it means to harass or punish in a manner designed to injure, to grieve, or to afflict. And a lot of us don't like that word, persecute. But specifically, it's the cause to suffer because of one's belief. And I understand that we live in the United States of America. And we've got our great amendments. We've got our first and second and third and on. And that protect us from outside persecution or outside onslaught or rejection. But uh, there's a day, as I said at the beginning of this, that there's a day coming where we're going to have to know, really know, what we believe. We're going to have to come to know what we actually believe. A couple points I'll speak to us here tonight. The first one is the cost of truth. The second one will be persuaded by the truth. And I won't get to the third. Everybody knows I'm long-winded. And I've got a timer, Pastor Lee. Praise God. Amen. The cost of truth. In the time slot that we live or that we've been given to live, Christianity has become something so obscure that we have a hard time defining what it really is. If somebody asks you, you know, what is Christianity in America? What is Christianity? Someone would give you a definition, you know, from a, a, a different background. Well, Christianity is this. Well, my, my perspective of Christianity is this, and Christianity is that. From all kinds of different perspectives of belief, Christianity is this and that. In just over 200 years, what was once understood as truth, everybody say truth. What was once understood as truth and paid for in blood, sweat, and tears by many has now become a confusing mess of speculative opinions. 
You look across the landscape of the United States of America, and the Lord's doing a great work inside of my mind. But you look at across the landscape, the religious landscape of the United States, and, and it's almost as if we've set up civil defense camps. In, in the world of Christianity. And if you don't look exactly like me, then, you know, it's bad for you. And we kind of send scud missiles up from one camp to the other. It's just, you know, smorgasbord. Christianity can be something as far left as you can imagine and something as far right as what you can imagine and everything in between. But we really have lost the essence of truth. Truth itself. Christianity in the West has become nothing more than a weekly event to most. When you say, are you a Christian? You know, we, we equate it with Sunday morning services, Wednesday night. If you're really faithful, it's a blessing for me to be here Wednesday night. Because this is, as Clendenin said, the rapture crowd. Amen. You know, but we, we equate it with just weekend events and, you know, kind of a culture. But really, what is Christianity to you? What is truth? And I've been searching deeply with inside of my heart. As, as Pilate looked at Jesus and asked him that question, what is truth? Have you ever asked yourself that question? And all the world information, what in it is truth? And ultimately we understand that truth is a person. It is found in the person of Jesus Christ. But what is truth to you? What is the value of truth to you? Does it, is, it, is it worth anything to you? Because most of us live in an age where we just, it's just flippant. You know, we just do it. We come here and, and it's just a part of our culture and we come. But what is propagated across most pulpits in, in, in the West and really even in Africa as I've traveled is nothing but a feel-good gospel. It's just something that props up and promotes the flesh. Jesus is here like a benevolent Santa Claus and he's here to make you healthy, wealthy, and blessed. And if you're not that, then something's going on with you. But I would like for you to show me that in the New Testament. Somebody show me where if I follow Jesus, you know, if you really ask the first uh, century church and the, the first you know, apostles, you know, what, if, if you ask somebody today what Jesus has done for them, you know what we would say? Well, you know, I, I was jobless, but he gave me a job. And I was wifeless, but he gave me a beautiful wife. And I couldn't have children and he healed my body. And I, you know, I, I had these issues and he took care of those issues. But if you ask the, the New Testament church, if you ask the apostles, what did Jesus do for you? A lot of them would say the absolute opposite. Well, I was a successful business, businessman. And Jesus told me to come and follow him. And I lost my business. I lost my practice. I lost my reputation. I lost everything. And ultimately, I paid with my very life. But most of us don't want to hear any of that. We want something that's just going to make me blessed and happy now. And Christ is trying to get us to look beyond the temporal, beyond the now. And look beyond it and see into the realm of eternity. We, we, we live in an age of just such a watered-down gospel. And I wonder what we would do if we were really faced with persecution. What would happen to us as a body if, if our government and our country literally turned against us? Where would we stand? Would we be able to hold to the, to the, the truth of the gospel regardless of what it cost us? Or would we just toss it to the side like some ideology that, you know, it's just too, it's too expensive. But since when has the message of the cross been catered to our indulgences? We, we, we always, and, and, and I'm a missionary. I travel constantly and I see the world possibly from a different vantage point than you. But in the West, we have created a, a Christianity that just caters to us. It doesn't cost us anything. Nothing. You just come to the come to church and wear a label. And I'm a Christian. And it literally costs us nothing. We let, allow it to become catered to what we like. And we get upset when a church doesn't have a certain program or a certain thing going on. Well, I'm going to go down the street. And we get upset because it's ultimately the, the gospel in the West is about me. It's about me. We have been become brainwashed in this generation to believe that Christ only exists to make us happy. But I'm, I'm going to ask you a question. 
What do we do about the persecuted church? You say, what are you talking about, Stephen? The persecuted church. I was in Turkey, as I said, in November. And uh, I was just a, a tremendous experience ministering to Syrian refugees. And Syria went through a civil war. And such a tragic war. 2010, 2011, the Arab uprising, the Arab Spring. And, and you know, we, we sit in Baton Rouge and our houses are still intact. And, you know, our lives still go forward. But Syria... Just go and look at, on Google, go Google Aleppo before and after the, the, the war. It's unbelievable what they did to their nation. And so you have 5 million Syrians that came out of Syria seeking asylum or seeking re refuge, you know, from the war that was going on in Syria. And as they come out, a lot of them are questioning life altogether questioning everything you know we, we've served Allah our whole life and yet our our nation is in civil war and so you have all these young people that have come up and out 11 years now I think or 12 years it's been since that happened and here I was in in Turkey administering to these Syrian refugees and these young people are, it was all young people they're all there and they're, you know, asking me a thousand questions about America and about the West and that kind of thing. And, you know, what is it like? And I ask, I'm asking them, you know, where do you go to school? And they looked at me and said, what do you mean? I'm not allowed to go to school. How long have you not gone to school? Since I moved here 11 years ago. What do you do all day? I just try to self-educate and all, all the, the, the cultural things. So it's so different. But I met a, a young man who I'll leave nameless and he's from Iraq and he gave me this bracelet that I wear on my hand, this one. And I'll never forget him as long as I live. And he began to talk to me about his testimony and what Christianity cost him. He's 25 years old. And uh, he said, when I was 19 years old, my parents, we were very, very wealthy in Baghdad, very wealthy, had all kinds of shops and stores. When I was, uh, uh, when I was 19, my dad gave me seven of my own stores to manage and care for, seven. Very wealthy. And he said, my father was a a Muslim priest, and he found Jesus. And he said, when he found Jesus, I loved my father so much, he said that I looked at my father and I said, Papa, whatever you tell me is truth, I believe it. If Jesus is the way, I will believe you. And he said, so I began to pursue the Lord and really found a real relationship with Jesus. And he said, it wasn't long after that that my uh, you know, I was in one of my shops and he said, my uncles and my cousins, you know, male uncles and cousins came, about 20 of them came to one of my shops. I shared this with the youth a couple nights ago. And, and he's kind of wondering what they're doing. And they had come to kill him. He said, and I studied, you know, Muay Thai and Jiu Jitsu, so I, I knocked six of them out before, you know, before I would let them get their hand. And I ran, he said. He said, in the end, he showed me his scars. He said, they stabbed me 13 times in the back and held me my knife point to my throat. And he said, it was a miracle that my father found me because I wouldn't be here talking to you. And I'm thinking to myself of us in, in the West, of how comfortable we have it, how wonderful and how beautiful it is in our freedoms. But yet the world, around the world, is so full of incessant hatred towards the gospel, towards truth. I will never forget when I was in Kenya, me and my wife, Grant was eight months old. Uh, we went to Kenya for three months. We lived in Nairobi and I was going to do uh, some crusades in Tanzania and Uganda and, and Kenya. And so we, we went to live and uh, I will never forget as long as I live, April the 12th, 2015, Easter week, we were pushing Grant in a stroller downtown Nairobi and, and just, you know, shopping around and getting some things. I was with Ben and, and we walked into a, a restaurant to get something to eat. And I saw on the television something that I, I've, I will never get out of my mind as long as I live. I watched the news reporter report that in Garissa, which was just north about four and a half hours from Nairobi to masked gunmen went into Garissa University where early on Tuesday morning they were having uh, the Christian population at the university was having a, a a prayer meeting they would gather every Tuesday morning to pray all the all the Christian students 
of Garissa University and two gunmen went in and wiped out 450 of them. And a week after this happened, I'll never forget, Nairobi shut down. It was a ghost town. You know, city of 2.7, almost 3 million people. Nobody in the streets. Nobody in the shops. Everybody's at home, locked in their houses, fear, afraid for their lives. And I remember being there. My parents called me. My in-laws called me and said, come home. Come home. We don't want you there. Are you okay? Well, you know, what's the situation? And I said, well, you know, I'm in a, I'm in a city of 3 million people. I, I think I'm okay. And we stayed. We stayed on. But I'll never forget. A week later, we went to a, uh, uh, a conference that was held at a really large church in Nairobi put on by Rabbi Zacharias. And I'll never forget th- this individual standing on the platform in that conference being one of the survivors. And he said... As the gunman, he began to describe it. As the gunman walked into uh, our prayer meeting, we didn't know what was going on at first. He said, but I literally laid there. I covered myself in my friend's blood to keep them from seeing or knowing that I was alive. And he said, you don't know what it's like. It's a really strange thing to wake up the next morning and scroll through your cell phone and have every contact in your cell phone no longer alive. Persecution. True persecution. It's real. We sit here and believe that such atrocities could never happen in America. Never happened to us because God loves us, right? That we're exempt from persecution because somehow God loves us more than He loves them. What a lie. How tragic of a mistake we've made because the value of our blood is no different to God no matter what your skin color is, your ethnicity, your your race, or your language. The, The value of humanity is the same. Regardless if you're born in the United States of America or you're born in in, in Myanmar, Southeast Asia, the value of your humanity is the same to God. We're not more valuable to God than they are. We're just fortunate enough to have been born in a time and a place where the foundation of this nation was established upon the moral framework of the Word of God. This is the only thing that separates us. That this nation and its foundation, and believe me, I I love the United States of America with all of my heart. I'm Canadian by birth. I love the United States. And we, we look at the foundation of this nation being founded upon the Word of God, upon the morality of the Word of God. But let's not kid ourselves. The foundations have not only cracked, they are literally falling apart. Our nation is crumbling. Why are we Why? Why is the foundations of this nation crumbling? Because, I'll tell you, what our forefathers bought and kept individually as truth, They bought and kept individually as truth. It's now traded on the marketplace of our world and culture as some antiquated idea that has no bearing on reality. What our forefathers bought and kept deep within sight of themselves as truth is now being traded as some ancient idea that, you know, doesn't, doesn't really bear on our consciences. We don't want anything to do with the Word of God anymore. And we're wondering why our world is falling apart. My forefathers, your forefathers fought and bled for this truth. You ever study the history of your nation? It's unbelievable. How that those men traveled across the Atlantic Ocean in search of religious freedom to found this nation. And here we are grappling with things that's going on even in the state of Louisiana. Just, uh, uh, yes, what was it? Well, I don't even know what day it is. Today's Wednesday, right? To think that we've come so far within our own people to want to mutilate little children. Why? Because we no longer traffic in truth. Did you hear me? We no longer traffic in propositional truth. Everything's relative. It's all just ideas and your ideas are yours and my ideas are mine and how I want to live is how I want to live. But unless we, unless we base our life upon propositional truth, our lives will waver like the, the waves of the sea. 
our, our, our country, our culture will just go back and forth with the, the ebb of, of wickedness, the tide of evil that's rising in this generation. We're witnessing with our own eyes and our own ears a culture that's completely devoid of conscience. Liberal media mocking the, convention, the convictions that were once held dear and the majority of the church wavering at their voice and beginning to question their own beliefs. That's what's going on. The media is just so very loud and all of us are, are looking inward. Well, what do I really believe? I don't really know. And we're being wavered, washed back and forth by this loud voice from the enemy. Can I ask you a question? What do you believe? Do you know what you believe? Do you know if it, if it cost you your life, would you be able to stay with truth or would you float down the stream of culture? What has happened? I will tell you what's happened. There has been no concrete trafficking of truth in the day-by-day dealings of our lives, we no longer traffic truth. Truth itself is relative. It bears no weight upon our conscience. And I've been wrestling with this with inside of my heart and my mind. Truth, the nature of truth. Do I really know what it is? Is it just some concoction of ideas? Or is it absolute and unchanging? And I'm here to tell you tonight that unless your truth is absolute and unchanging, your life will drift with the currents of our culture. Base your life, build your life upon truth. What most of of the church world possesses, hear me now, is truth by way of osmosis. What am I talking about? It's truth by way of osmosis. Notions about Christ and His Word that have been caught and transferred to us by the labor of somebody else. Somebody else digs something up and we put it on social media. And you know, it, we, we like it and we're like, oh, I like that. I'll just take that and put that in my pocket. And I like that that somebody else has dug up and put that in my pocket and we share it. And that's been become the basis of our theological understanding. And it's brought to us by the, the research or the, the, the work of somebody else. It's revelation by second hand or it's truth by second hand revelation is what it is. And secondhand truth does not, it does not hold the value as much as firsthand information. I said this to the young people on Monday night. If somebody accused you of murder, somebody came up to you and said, I saw you, it was you in the billiard room with the pipe. <laughs> truth be told. If somebody came up to you and said, you. I know it was you. I saw you. And, and you knew in your heart that that wasn't the truth. That you were actually with your mom uh, getting your nails done. Oh, you men better not be getting your nails done. <laughs> you know what you would do? You would lose your mind. Absolutely lose your mind. Defending yourself because what you said is not true. I know with all of my heart that this is where I was. This is what I was doing. This is the time I was doing. We even took a selfie. You want to see it? And you would do with whatever you could do to prove to everyone around you your innocence. You're not guilty. I'm innocent. But when it comes to secondhand information, it's not as convincing. What, what is secondhand revelation? Most of us just live by secondhand revelation. Your pastor brings word, brings preaching, bring, brings uh, word to the pulpit, and you receive it and you hear it. But how many of you know how much greater value it is when God reveals something to you personally? When you're alone in your bedroom, alone in your closet, alone in your office, and you're just, you're, the word of God is before you, and you're digging through it, and he speaks so, so, so pointedly to your heart. And you're like, my God, this is... And you want to go tell everybody, don't you? You, you, call, your, you call your everyone. You're on the phone. Man, let me tell you what the Lord said. Let me tell you what revelation God gave me. That's the weight of first-hand revelation. But we un- all understand the, the value of second-hand revelation. Just ask Eve. Because God spoke to Adam. 
and said, Adam, don't eat that fruit. But there's no record of God speaking it to Eve. Adam spoke it to Eve. And Eve should have come back to God and said, God, can I have a conversation with you? But it was secondhand revelation, secondhand information. And secondhand information has very little value. Very little. To Eve, it was worth worth the taste of a piece of fruit that promised something that could never be hers. It was cheap grace, never purchased by Eve herself. And hear me, cheap grace will be always be sold even cheaper still. If it comes to you without a cost, you'll be quick to sell it. Doesn't really mean much to me. We are commanded in Proverbs 23, 23 to buy the truth. What is truth? And I'm not going to spend much longer here. Maybe, maybe not. Oh, we'll see. We'll see. Psalms 119 verses 160. The Bible says in the ESV, it says this. The sum of your word is truth. What is he talking about? He's talking about Genesis all the way to Revelation. If you stacked them end on end and you know, you did the equation and you added them all up, the sum total of your word is truth. Everything that's within the, between the black pages of this book is, is divine truth and we need to get it within inside of our hearts and get it inside of our spirit and, and come to a concrete uh, definition that I'm going to stand on truth. This is truth. And I can talk to you a long time about this tonight. What is truth? But, but, there's so many things going on in my mind right now. Amen. It is the precepts and principles that God lays out for us in Scripture. It's the law, the prophets, the wisdom literature, the gospels, the teachings of Christ, the doctrines of faith and practice. And, and the Bible says, all of us, he said, buy the truth. Go and take whatever you got and buy it. And he gave us a commandment. He said, you better not sell it. Don't sell it. Buy it, but never ever sell it. Who's to buy it? Who's to buy truth? Is it just us in full-time ministry? Just Pastor Lee, right? It's only him. He buys the truth, and he's going to distribute the truth to us. No. What about just just the worship leaders? That's the only people that are really, you know, it's just those in full-time ministry on this platform. We are the ones that are commanded to buy the truth. The rest of you just come, and we'll just feed you. No, no. The Bible says for all of us, every single one of us, to buy the truth from the youngest to the oldest. We are required to take what intellectual faculties we possess and thoughtfully reason out what is being presented to us. We live in a generation where nobody questions. We just take it at face value. Because not everything sold on the marketplace of religion is truth. Did you hear me? Not everything that comes across pulpits is truth. Not everything that's propagated. You know, you, you drive, drive across our country. I just did it. And there's churches everywhere, on every corner, all over the place. And all of them say, we got the truth. We got the truth, honey. Come in here. We got the truth. Church of truth. Truth, truth, truth. But you've got to understand something. That not everything that calls itself truth is truth. And so we have to do some heavy lifting now. It's time for us to stop being intellectually lazy. It's time for us to begin to ask questions. Ask questions because there's so much nonsense that goes on within the realm of Christianity in the United States of America that it makes me sick. So much stuff that comes through churches and embraced by churches. But what is truth? You ever ask yourself that question? An insurmountable number of churches, faiths, and religious practices market themselves as truth. And we must be wise in our dealings because there are many false prophets amongst us. So many false teachers, false preaching, leading men astray that are given to tickling the ear and making you feel comfortable in your sin. I don't know about you, but please tell me the truth. Hear me. If you ever see anything in my life or my ministry that's not right, please, somebody tell me the truth. Don't be afraid to approach me and say, something's going on. I'm, I would rather you tell me here than I might correct it here. And it'd be too late. So many of us are afraid of truth. But listen, there, there, there are so many different ideas that is being promoted in this nation. And I don't have time to get into all this. I've already been 30 minutes. The prosperity gospel is not truth. 
The easy social gospel that makes light of sin is not truth. Religious denominations out west that add to the word of God, like Joseph Smith and the Jehovah's Witnesses, are wrapped up in a kingdom of the cults. They're not truth. But yet they come across as truth. And so what do we do? I feel like God would say to us like Job, just come and reason. Come on, let's just use our brains. Let's think about these things. There's a salvation being sold that requires nothing. No repentance, no cross, no death. It's cheap grace. And please don't buy it. It's not the truth. Second point here, and I told you I wouldn't make it to the third. Persuaded by the truth, and I'm going to move quick. We're commanded to be diligent in our search for truth. And when we have found it, it's an interesting commandment. He said, you are to buy it, and you're never, ever, ever allowed to sell it. There is, you're not warranted to sell the truth. Your own, I know some people that sell truth, but we won't get into that. <laughs> we, are, we are commanded to buy it, but never sell it. And all of the commodities of life that we traffic in, you know, we're allowed to buy and sell, right? You buy a house, you like it for a little while, and you don't like it. You sell it. You get a car and it wears out. You sell it for a little bit and go buy a different one. You, you, you buy clothes and you don't like it, so you give it to consignment places and you sell it. Right, ladies? Huh. All the commodities of life that we traffic in, we're allowed to buy and sell. Vehicles, houses, lands, clothing, possessions. But this one commodity, we are commanded to never, ever sell it. Regardless of what we are offered, we are never to sell that truth. And once we have bought it, we are to keep it and guard it and live by it. That's what we are commanded to do. Buy the truth, traffic in the truth, and then live by the truth. Because it, like freedom, if mishandled, hear me, can be lost. If we mishandle the truth and we don't really deal with it, it can be lost. On January the 5th, 1967, in his inaugural address, Ronald Reagan said this. You ready? He said, freedom is a fragile thing. And it's never more than one generation away from extinction. It is ours. It is not ours by way of inheritance. Listen, Americans. It's not ours by way of inheritance. It must be fought for and defended constantly by each generation. For it only comes once to a people. And I rewrote his words, and this is what I say. Like freedom, truth can be put in context like this. Truth is an impregnable thing, but it's never more than one generation away from being lost. It's not ours by way of inheritance. It must be fought for and defended constantly by each generation. For once it is lost, hear me, the price to purchase it again is more than most are willing to pay. Once it's lost, it's going to cost us blood now to get it back. And there have been some who have bought the truth and no matter the cost, held the truth in spite of threats, hatred, and persecution. A lot of people as I travel the world and travel around, they ask me what this ring is about. And this, this is very special to me. I was in Congo in 2018, and uh, the crusade director that helped direct the crusade there in, in Kanye Boyanga, um, he was one of the, the heads of the pastors that put this crusade on. His name was Jean Paul. And at the end of the crusade, you know, we had thousands of people there, and at the end of the crusade, Jean Paul came up to me and he said, I want to give you something that you might remember us. And he handed me this ring. I'm not going to tell you what it's made out of. He handed me this ring and he said, I want you to wear this. And I have not taken it off my hand since 2018. And three years ago, Ben called me and he said, Jean Paul has been murdered in Congo for the gospel. We don't even know how to, like, let that weigh on you. Murdered. He gave me a suit of clothes, shoes, and I first got to Congo and I 
have the suit and the shoes in my closet. And every time I go in my closet, I think about Jean-Paul. And the cost that he bought the truth. He bought it. Regardless of what it cost him, he would never sell it. I'm going to close with this. While John the Revelator was exiled on the island of Patmos for the testimony of Jesus Christ, we all know this from Revelations chapter 1, he, was, he saw a vision of the Lord as he appeared to him in perfection, walking through the seven golden candlesticks, which were the seven churches of Asia Minor. And one of those churches was Smyrna. And I want to just kind of put this in, in, in a picture here. Listen to what Jesus said to the members of that church. Revelations chapter 2, verses 8. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last which was dead and is alive. Verses 9. I know your works in tribulation, tribulation, and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say that they are Jews and they are not but of the synagogue of Satan, he said, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Jesus said to the church of Smyrna, Don't be afraid of the sufferings and the persecutions that are going to come. I wonder what some of us would do with that information if it came to us in a living reality in 2023. Don't be afraid of the persecutions that are going to come to you. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. That you may be tried and you will have tribulation ten days. And he said this, be faithful unto death. And I'll give you a crown of life. John wrote that in A.D. 95. Follow me here. He wrote that in A.D. 95. Roughly 60 years later. Are you ready? Sixty years later, history records the tremendous persecutions of the church in Smyrna. Many of them, uh, many, many fulfilled the prophecy or this prophecy given to John. And one such man was a man by the name of Polycarp. And I'm sure your pastors told you all about Polycarp, but I'm going to revisit this as we close. Musicians, if you would return. Polycarp was the bishop of the church of Smyrna. And I know that that Polycarp in his dedication to the Lord remembered, read the words that Jesus wrote through the apostle John on the island of Patmos because it was directed to him. Don't be afraid of death, Polycarp. Don't be afraid of persecution. If they put you in prison, don't be afraid of it. Be faithful unto death and I'll give you a crown of life. He bought the truth And not even at the price of his own blood could make him sell it. Let me just read this to you. Some Christians had just been martyred in the Colosseum in Smyrna. And this would take me about 15 minutes to read it all. I'm not going to. But three days before Polycarp's arrest, while he was praying, he saw in a vision at night the pillow under his head suddenly seized by fire and consumed. Upon this awakening, he immediately interpreted the vision to those that were present, almost foretelling that which was about to happen and declaring plainly to those that were with him that it would be necessary for him, for Christ's sake, to die by fire. So convinced of truth that he said, it doesn't matter. Whatever way I've got to die, I will die. I will be faithful. And then all kinds of people came to him and said, run, Polycarp, run. Go out into the country. Go out into the field. Run. Get away from here. And so he listened to some of them initially. He went from one farm to another farm. And then from that farm to another after a few days of moving. But like bloodhounds, they began to search for him. And they found him. And they found where he was, the the farm that he was at. And they began to torture two or three of the people that were hiding or concealing his whereabouts until they gave him up. And he was... He was laying down in his bed in the loft of a barn, Polycarp was. And coming one late, coming in late one evening, they found him lying in an upper room. Once he might have gone to another house, but he would not, saying, The will of God be done. My God, I want, to, I want this kind of resolute disposition. That when I'm, when, if I'm ever staring death in the face, 
I would say like Polycarp, God's will be done. If it's my time to go, it's my time. It goes on to say that, you know, he, he greeted them. That came like two or three captors. He greeted them. They were overwhelmed at this old man. He was in his 80s. That all of Smyrna would be turned upside down for the, the, the pursuit of this one man, Polycarp. And then when they saw him, he's just this old gentle man. And, he, and, and when they came in the house, Polycarp said, fix him a meal. And so they fixed him a meal and they ate together. And they were kind of questioning themselves, why are we searching for this one? And then he looked at the men and he said, You eat, but please give me an hour to pray. And history records, Eusebius records it, that he prayed. And he prayed for everyone that he knew in life. Everyone that he came across. He prayed for every church and every believer and every pastor and every child and every, every person. He prayed for all of them. And then afterwards they brought him in the carriage and a lot of details I'll skip here, but they tried to change his mind. You know, they, they got him in the, in, the, in the chariot or the carriage and said, Polycarp, what, what harm is there in saying Lord Caesar? And just say, all you got to do is say, Lord Caesar. That's it. I wonder how many of us would just go like this. All you got to do is just say, Lord Caesar. Drop it and save your life. And he did not answer at first, but they kept just badgering him with this. Why don't you just say, Lord Caesar, is this really worth your life? And he looked at them and said, if you're trying to convince me to denounce what I believe in, you're wasting your breath. And then they got mad at him. They took him out of the, out of the carriage and literally just cast him on the ground, an 80, 85-year-old man. And history records that he they lacerated his shin and just began to bleed but he picked himself up and he walked in to the stadium there in Smyrna this is really important but there was such a tumult in the stadium that not many, this is history now not many heard a voice from heaven which came to Polycarp as he was entering that place and the voice said this be strong Polycarp and play the man no one saw the speaker but many of our people heard the voice and then he goes on. When the magistrate pressed him and said, Swear, and I will release you. Revile Christ, Polycarp said, For 86 years I've been serving him. And he's never done me any wrong. How then can I blaspheme the king who saved me? 86 years he's been faithful. How can I deny the one that saved me? But again, he persisted and said, Swear by the genius of Caesar. And Polycarp replied, If you vainly suppose that I will swear by the genius of Caesar, as you, as you say, feigning me to be ignorant of who I am, he said this, If you're ignorant of who I am, hear me plainly. I am a Christian. In the midst of all of the stadium, I am a Christian. That's all he had to say. And it was a death sentence. And then they sent announcers out. Polycarp has declared himself to be a Christian. And there was a tumult, an uproar in that stadium. Crying out, kill him, murder him. And the proconsul said, I have wild beasts. This is what they said to him. I have wild beasts. I will throw you to them unless you repent. And Polycarp looked at him and said, call them. Get your animals ready. Call them. For repentance. He said, call them for repentance from better to worse. is a change we cannot make, but it's a noble thing to turn from wickedness to righteousness. But he again said unto them, if you despise the wild beasts, I will cause you to be consumed by fire unless you repent. And Polycarp said, you threaten with a fire which burns for an hour. And after a little is quenched. For you know not of the fire of the future judgment of the, and of the eternal punishment which is reserved for the wicked. But he said, why are you delaying? Go and do what you're going to do. And so history says that it was unbelievably quick how fast 
the people in that stadium went and got sticks. They all went out and got pieces of wood and sticks and things that would burn. And they brought it back almost, it was almost like an instant. And they came to Polycarp. And as their custom was, they would you know, build a grid. And they would take the body of the martyr and pierce him through, nail him through to hold him to this wooden latticed structure. And Polycarp looked at them and said, don't pierce me through. He said, I won't run. They would pierce him through so they, would, they, would, they would, wouldn't run away from the flame. But he said, don't pierce me through. He said, the, 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 the strength that I have will keep me in this flame. And so they wrapped his arms with ropes, tied him to this lattice work, and, and they lit the fire. Before they lit, before they lit it, this is what... This is the end of it here. And he with hands behind him and bound like a noble ram taken from a great flock, an acceptable burnt offering unto God, omnipotent said this. And this is the last words of Polycarp. He said, Father of your beloved Son and blessed Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels and of all powers and of the whole creation and of the entire race of the righteous who live in your presence, I bless you. That you've deemed me worthy this day, of this day and hour, that I might receive a portion of the number of the martyrs in the cup of Christ, unto resurrection of eternal life, both of soul and of body, and the immortality of the Holy Spirit. Among these may I be received before you this day in a rich and acceptable sacrifice, as you, the faithful and true God have beforehand prepared and revealed and have fulfilled. Wherefore, I praise you also for everything. Can you imagine standing in a stadium, getting ready to be lit on fire and having such deep conviction and words? He said this, I bless you. Jesus, I bless you. I glorify you through the eternal high priest, Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, through whom with him in the Holy Spirit be glory unto you, both now and for the ages to come. Amen. And then they lit the fire. When he offered up his amen and had finished his prayer, the firemen lit the fire. And as a great flame blazed out, everybody, you can stand. As a great flame blazed out, we, to whom it was given to see, saw a wonder. And there we, and, and, and we were preserved that we might relate what the, the miracle that happened to others. For the fire presented the appearance of a vault, almost like a sail. And, and, and the fire was just like a sail that was blown with wind, like the sail of a vessel filled by the wind and made a wall about the body of the martyr. And it was in the midst, not like flesh burning, but like gold and silver being refined in a furnace. For we perceived such a fragrant odor as of the fumes of frankincense or of some other precious spices. So at length, excuse me, the lawless men, when they saw that the body could not be consumed by fire, commanded an executioner to approach and pierce him with the sword. And when he had done this, there came forth a quantity of blood so that it, it extinguished the fire. And the whole crowd marveled that there should be such a difference between the unbelievers and the elect, of whom this man also was one, the most wonderful teacher of our times, apostolic and prophetic, who was the bishop of the church in Smyrna. For every word which came from, for, came from his mouth was accomplished and will be accomplished. I ask you this question tonight. Have you bought the truth? If we were to face impending persecution upon this nation, how many of us would be left in this room? You know, it's an incredible thing when you study the history of the church and you see in the first, first and second century, whenever freedom was given by Rome to the church, the church would begin to divide itself. Whenever freedom was given, 
they divide over just hair splits of doctrine. Well, I am this and I am that and I am this. And they'd split and divide. There'd be division within the body. But as soon as an emperor arose that hated the church and began to persecute the church, all divisions left. All. And they all came back united under the banner of Jesus Christ, those willing to give their lives. And the church pressed forward triumphant. Tonight, would you bow your heads with me? Father, I thank you, Lord, for this privilege being here on a Wednesday night. Thank you, Lord, for your word. I ask you, Lord, that for those that are here under the sound of my voice, that this Wednesday night might not just be another. God, may our relationship with you not be trivial. May our, our, our dealings with your word, may, may it not be just some second-hand experience. And Father, may we have real, tangible, first-hand experience with you. So that when persecutions rise, and our culture is completely demon-possessed, and they come for us, Father, may we stand and no matter the cost even at the price of our own blood Father may we not sell the truth tonight if you are here and you say I I want a deeper revelation of truth I, I, I want to know that if I was to look down the barrel of a gun that I would have the fortitude the faith to say do what you will with me whatever you want do it I will not sell the truth that's you tonight I would like for you to step out from where you are and make yourself an altar we might have strength in times of difficulty. That we might not lose our faith. When persecution comes, when trials come, when difficulty comes, because it's going to come, may we, like Polycarp, Like my friend John Paul, like my friend from Turkey, say, I don't care what you do with me. I will not deny the Lord Jesus. I will not deny him. I have bought the truth and I will not sell it no matter what the price is. Let's do some buying of the truth tonight. Let's traffic in his word. Let's get in, in this altar and obtain, possess, purchase truth, propositional truth that you'll never sell. Amen. Let's pray.